It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. This week, we have a very special guest on the show. All-star sci-fi writer Cory Doctorow, a fellow Canadian and someone who has written about the dystopic near future with stunning accuracy. His latest novel, Attack Surface, tells the tale of a counterterrorism agent and the terrifying power of the surveillance state. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. Corey, thank you for coming on the show. Friend of the show. Thank you very much. I like to think of of myself as a friend of the show. I I listen every week. (laughs) Well, we're happy to have you on. And, you know, I was just saying to you, you're a writer who focuses on the future. Are you running out of things to write about? Because things just continuously get more and more fucked up every single week. (laughs) Well, you know, people who claim to know the future are charlatans. And so, you know, science fiction writers who claim to know the future are either deluding themselves or deluding you. So I, I've never really thought of it as like a, a a predictive medium. It's a reflective and maybe an aspirational or warning medium, right? Here's what, here's how things could go bad. Here's where, how things could be great. Here's a way to think about what's going on now by by thinking about it in the future, but not you know, I here I have uh, a crystal ball that will show you what is in your future because no one has that crystal ball. Uh, I am writing a book now, you know, not the book that we're talking about today, I think, but but I'm writing a book now, uh, The Lost Cause, that's a post-Green New Deal utopian novel that is indistinguishable from a dystopian novel except for the approach that the people in the book have to the emergency that they're living through. So everything's still on fire. There's still mass pandemics. There's still rising seas and all the rest of it. And the difference is that they've oriented themselves and their economy and their moral project around like a 300-year project to move every city 20 kilometers inland, to you know plant a billion trees, to deal with hundreds of millions of traumatized refugees. They call themselves the first generation in a century that doesn't fear the future. And, you know, I find that future not only easy to write, but like almost shamefully easy to write because for an hour every day I escape the red skies of Southern California and move into this <laughs> better world. You know, it's it's fantastic. <laughs> okay, so question. I mean, your your latest book, it's pretty timely already. So you're not so much, you're not predicting it, but you seem to be kind of nailing things that do end up happening. So, so let me tell you, I, I mean... If you want to talk about stuff that's timely on a long fuse, this book that we're talking about today is Attack Surface. It's the third book of the Little Brother books. And the first one, Little Brother, came out in 2008, and I wrote it in 2006. And it's a book that is still read as like a contemporary story, uh, even though it's a techno thriller, right? That gets really into the weeds about things like dual key cryptography and steganography and countermeasures and so on. And the reason that story remains relevant is because it made three bets, not predictions, but bets. One was that computer science would remain relatively static. Like we weren't going to magically wake up one day and figure out how to like make crypto that worked when good guys used it, but not when bad guys used it. And, Mm -hmm. and so it would, you know, we like computer engineering, like makes all kinds of leaps and bounds, but computer science has been pretty static since, you know, Turing and von Neumann. And so computer science would be static uh, and that computers themselves would become more embedded in our lives that like the 
the universality of computers would mean that there'd be people who are improving them for different reasons, but those improvements would ripple out to lots of people. And then finally, that governments would continue to deal with computers as though they were metaphors instead of things that had capabilities and limitations and make bad policy mm -hmm. and that that policy would remain salient, become more salient from day to day. And all of those things remain true 14 years after I wrote the book, 12 years after I, I published it. Likewise, attack surface is like, we will continue to see fracture lines arising from inequality and the use of technology as a means of control, that there will be a lot of chewy stuff happening where people who use technology to reclaim self-determination uh, self and autonomy meet the people whose job it is to take that away from them, that tech workers who you know get into their field because self-determination is so attractive to them. They can make the computer do whatever it is they need to do. They can find networks where there are people who understand the things that they seem like they're the only ones who understand and they can make common cause with them, that they will continue to experience like vast moral dilemmas about the increasing role that they're being put in, which is to take away the self-determination and autonomy of computer users and to transfer all of that to their bosses. <laughs> and, and, mm -hmm. and, and that, um, Rising authoritarianism would be the way that we tried to address the moral and economic debt that we're in, in an unequal society whose participants are less and less willing to treat that society as legitimate because it's not serving them or their interests. And that rather than finding a, a way to uh, bring those people into the fold by making a more inclusive society, we would try instead to uh, uh, negate their claims to legitimacy through force. Right, various kinds of force, whether that's the projected force of surveillance or the kinetic force, where the surveillance tells you who to, you know, drop a drone on. And I mean, you you deal with something in the book that we report on. I mean, almost. I think we're we're. I'm going to come out and say we're maybe the best source of news on a group called the NSO mm -hmm. and some of the elite sort of money for hire hacker mercenary types. I mean, what, what about something like that attracted you so much as a, as a writer? Yeah, so the protagonist of this book, Masha, she starts off as like a DHS, almost a volunteer. You know, her city gets hit by terrorists and she decides that she wants to, to do something about it. And, you know, I, 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 after I wrote this, I read Snowden's biography, uh, his memoir of how he got involved. And I, I realized that that was kind of the, what I was channeling was that rage that he felt after the 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 uh, attacks, and which certainly, you know, I was living in San Francisco and I was in the tech industry when that hit and you could really feel that. And then, and then she moves on to be like a beltway bandit, um, getting a lot of money to, to hunt insurgents in Iraq. And then finally she just becomes like a straight up mercenary working for basically a thinly veiled version of NSO, uh, where her gig is helping uh, dictators put down color revolutions in the former Soviet Union. And, you know, like you, I'm an Ontarian and, you know, watching the, the work that's been done by groups like Citizen Lab on NSO and on the, the incredible just like howling void where their ethical center should be and the way that they just, you know, BS about what they're doing, where they say, you know, we provide law enforcement tools to legitimate governments. And then it's like, oh, and also we help entrap Jamal Khashoggi and have him cut up with a, bo a bone saw. But that's clearly mm -hmm. part of, you know, the, the due process world. And having been mm -hmm. threatened by one of the owners of the NSO group for writing about her stake in it, I, I was really like intrigued by how this group of people, many of whom individually espouse a commitment to human rights and, and decency, have found themselves 
you know, supplying the worst people on earth with the tools to figure out who to kidnap and torture and murder. Well, I just think it's also just it speaks to the moral uh, the moral decline of the West. Not that we had any 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 great any great contributions to morality in the first place, but the fact that we're we create these systems from the war and terror years, these types of people that come out and then sell their what they've been learning and their knowledge to horrible places that just can afford it. I mean, it, like it's it's just it's sort of it shows that that, that our own our military and 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 I would say intelligence industrial complex is just so rotten at the core. Well, and and the I think that the thing that allows us as people who live in the countries that are exporting these tools around the world to feel sanguine about them is this assumption that there won't be any blowback, right? The the way that war fighting has changed since the the war on terror with its emphasis on small deployments of regular troops and much larger support networks of beltway bandits who have effectively unlimited budgets. And this was another thing that was very revelatory for me actually about Snowden's memoir was he goes to work for um he tries to get a job in the IC and they say fine but you need to you need to do it through an a contractor because while our budgets aren't capped our headcount is and so we can hire as many people as we want but we have to hire them through Booz Allen or 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 some other mm-hmm. bandit and when he goes to the recruiter the recruiter says well how much money do you want and he said well you know as a govy i was making whatever $70,000 a year and the recruiter's like no you need to ask for $300,000 a year cuz we get 15% of it and they don't care. It's not their money, right? They'll just pay it. So, so you yep. know, we're we're fine with that. So we have this sense that this this war that's not fought by regular troops, so we don't have as many body bags coming home, uh, is not going to have the blowback that that um, we uh, experience, say, with Vietnam, where or or World War Two, where where people who returned from those wars found themselves in a in a country that had been transformed by the war that was being fought thousands of miles away. And what we see, especially with with um, the BLM uprising this summer, is that the counterinsurgency tactics that were adop- adopted for use by America and its economic allies overseas, especially those who had a low regard for human rights, um, those uh, same contractors found e- eager customers here in the US. And, you know, I think of the work that you guys have done tracking down uh, ring contracts with local PDs and just how this stuff that uh, is all happening off the books in the shadows, you know, and we just don't know, uh, you know, who's buying what or how they're using it. And it opens up all of the same dysfunctions that we see overseas. So on the one hand, you see these very brutal crackdowns. Uh, and on the other hand, you see a lot of snake oil, right? You know, it, it, the the same process that led the U.S. and its allies to spend thousands of dollars, millions of dollars on dousing rods that were supposed to detect IEDs is the process that caused American cities to buy services from Predpol, right? All this, all this kind of uh, junk science stuff it, it finds an eager customer base when you uh, don't have to do a public procurement process that exposes your product to public uh, adversarial review. And so you can just sell garbage. And also, I mean, just the garbage of the war on terror years has been then peddled to police forces. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) You know, like Humvees that don't really work that all that well, stuff that you don't even need in an urban combat environment. And like you, you now suddenly police need these things. Like, I don't I don't think so. I mean, there was something really 
really strange and, and, and ironic about the fact that it was a story that we broke that Joseph Cox got a hold of was that there was a, a drones being deployed by DHS mm-hmm. to monitor the Minneapolis protests. Yeah. And you think about that and you go, those drones were being deployed in you know foreign war zones and now they're back home looking at what is essentially an uprising. And it's just, there is some, there's a, there's a bitter irony about that and about like where America finds itself. Well, and it's also, it's, it's just the, the uh, military industrial version of what I call the shitty technology adoption curve. So if you want to know what's going to be done to prisoners in a year, look at what we're doing to people in immigration detention. And if you want to know what's going to be done to kids in a year, look what we're doing to prisoners. And if you want to know what's going to be done to blue collar workers in a year, look what we're doing to kids. And if you want to know what's going to be done to you white collar workers in a year, look what we're doing to blue collar workers, right? Each phase as you as you ascend the kind of privilege gradient allows the vendors to sand off the rough edges and also to normalize the proposition that we should all be wearing prisoner bl- bl- uh, bracelets, right? That, you know, like first it was kids on parole or kids in the UK with ASBOs who were wearing these these prisoner tracking bracelets or people who were on um, uh, asylum, who had asylum claims and were awaiting their hearings. But then, you know, your employer comes along and says, if you don't wear a Fitbit, we're going to charge you an extra premium on your on your health insurance. And then Google comes along and says, we're buying Fitbit and all that data. Right, that 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 is the, the the inexorable path, right? If you think that your technological privilege uh, or your your personal societal privilege exempts you from this, you've got another thing coming. That that you know the stuff that you build to entrap people who uh, don't have the power to resist will someday come to you. I think you're completely right. I mean, that's it's just like we're now all subject to this complete machine. And I think in this country in particular, it, it, it so clearly is driven by capital mm-hmm. and how this and what what makes money and that that and that's just become circular. <laughs> well, and much more so than capital, but monopoly, right? That that yeah. one of the things about technology is that it's a great supercharger monopoly. And as we record this, you know, Google's just been hit by its DOJ antitrust, which was long awaited. But my mm-hmm. first day on the job at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, eighteen and a half years ago, was going to something called the Broadcast Protection Discussion Group which was discussing a uh, ecosystem-wide DRM system for uh, nominally for protecting over-the-air digital video transmissions. So the FCC really mm-hmm. wanted companies to start broadcasting high-definition movies in the clear because you can't encrypt over-the-air in the U.S. under the way that the, the spectrum licenses are structured. And so what they wanted to do was mandate that anything that was capable of receiving a digital television signal would have to treat that signal as though it were encrypted. So you receive it in the clear and then you immediately encrypt it and you never allow for a clear text to appear in a user operational space again. And anything that can plug into that device has to also come with this mandate. And the deeper we got into this, the more we realized that they were just talking about PCs and that like every PC would end up uh, regulated by the FCC. And the proposal they came back with was that the FCC would evaluate new technologies to see whether they complied. But out of the gate, there would just be technologies from what were called the 5C and the 4C group, which are the five largest CE companies and the four largest IT companies. And that if you didn't have a license from one of them, you couldn't build a PC anymore. And the FCC actually adopted the order. And we at EFF sued the FCC for exceeding their jurisdiction, along with the American Library Association and Public Knowledge. And we, we beat it back. But but all of the companies in that room, all these little vendors that showed up because they made like 
you know, prototypes of the Zune or like little PVRs or whatever. We're like, all right, they're going to make a standard. We got to get in the standard. Otherwise, we won't be able to make it. And then they get to the last day, right, where they're like describing what's going in the standard. And it's like record scratch. By the way, you need to take a license from one of these nine companies or you don't get to make PCs anymore or anything that plugs into a PC. And, you know, that kind of technological control, I think, eventually really does come and bite people on the ass because, you know, all of those people who work for those companies were not lifers, right? All the people working for Intel and Apple and so on, they were eventually going to get forced out or get a sweeter job somewhere else or want to do a startup or whatever. And when they did, they would be frozen out of their own industry by their own work because the only job they could get would be at a company that had to take a license from their former employer. Exactly. I mean, that's, I mean, that, well, I think also that just speaks to how that Wild West period of Silicon Valley, where it almost seems like we established all the rules that we're still playing by today in a very different environment than what we're living in right now. Well, and this kind of gets back to the book too. So one of the things that people ask me about the original book and this book is the first two books, Homeland and, and Little Brother, are about people who are on the one hand, extremely confident about the liberatory power of technology, and on the other hand, very scared about the power of technology to, to, to enslave people, to entrap people. And this one is told from the point of view of someone whose job it is to take away people's self-control and, and, and autonomy using computers. And so they're like, well, have you lost your faith, your optimism in, in how technology can make the world a better place? And I think that, you know, nobody gets involved with or starts an organization like the Electronic Frontier Foundation because they are convinced that everything will just be fine, right? If you're convinced everything will just be fine, go do something else, right? You have to join because you feel like, on the one hand, things could be great, but on the other hand, if they're not, they'll be really terrible. And I think Mm -hmm. that the thing that we missed 20 years ago, 30, well, EFF turns 30 this year, we just had our 30th anniversary party. The thing that we missed 30 years ago was not the power of technology to make people's lives terrible. We were very alive to that and have spent 30 years being really worried about technological dystopia and also really excited about what technology could do if unshackled from the dystopian urge. What I think we missed was that we were coming into existence during the last hurrah of antitrust enforcement. And that mm-hmm. the U.S. government was just like they 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 had fully taken on board the doctrine of this guy Robert Bork, who is this Nixonite criminal who became mm-hmm. Reagan a Reaganite you know kind of uh, court court sorcerer who said we shouldn't enforce any antitrust law ever again unless you can show that right after a monopolistic action consumers will pay higher prices everything else is fair game. And that's how we ended up with what Tom Eastman calls the the web of of five giant websites, each filled with screenshots of text from the other four, right? It's it's not because like Google made a million products that we all loved and therefore we're all just using Google stuff. Google's made like one and a half products that we love, right? They made a great search engine, pretty good Hotmail clone. And depending on who, who you ask, maybe they created Android in-house and that team that they hired were not really the Android developers. Everything else that they've got that succeeded, they bought from someone else. And everything they tried to make in-house completely failed, right? And- yeah, and, 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 and not to mention, it's just like it also, it, that speaks to sort of this period in which I'd probably say 2006 to 2010, where we all thought that technology and these big companies in Silicon Valley were going to save humanity. I don't know if I ever all felt thought that. that. <laughs> I mean, but that was the, that was the general feeling, sure. right? Like these, we're going to find solutions to the humanity's issues yeah. through these, you know, these 
these algorithms that these geniuses are making. And really all we did was like learn how to like share pictures better and like yeah. have people gather our, 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 our information way, way more, way more efficiently. Well, for sure. I mean, I think that some of that is, is the quantitative fallacy, right? Where people who work in quantitative disciplines, you know, observe a problem that has some irreducible qualitative element to it. And they're like, I don't know how to do math on qualitative elements. I'll just incinerate that. And what I what is left behind, like the the dubious quantitative residue, I'll do my math on that and assume it'll all work it okay. And you know, in 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 the in 2020, that's physicists designing reopening programs that like result in universities having 700 cases two weeks later because they didn't know how to model the possibility that students would want to have like eyeball licking parties. But but yep. you know, back well 10 years ago with EFF, I was involved in something called uh, the um, the DVBCPCM, which was like digital television standards for for Europe and and parts of Asia and South America and Australia. And, and they were defining this thing called the authorized domain. And what it was supposed to be was a system to let you share video with your family, but not with people who weren't families. And they were like, we're just going to define what a family is with math, right? And I was like, hey, guys, um, you know, there are a bunch of families that your model can't account for, right? Like, what if mom lives in uh, Manila with dad, but dad is like a... a goes off and does migrant work like six months of the year and and younger brother is in uh, Qatar building a stadium and older sister is a healthcare worker in California. How do you accommodate all of them? And they were like, well, we don't know how to accommodate that without allowing a lot of, of piracy. But look at how flexible our system is. If you've got like a houseboat and if you've got a cottage in France, we can totally figure it out and let your minivan accommodate it, right? And so this is, the, you know, when you when you decide which parts of the qualitative experience matter and which parts are just two kind of, are just corner cases that you don't need to accommodate, then you do end up with this, this BSE kind of solutionism where you're like, oh yeah, no, I know how to solve that problem because I'm just operating on the parts that have a qualitative uh, or that have a quantitative um, dimension. And I'm throwing away the qualitative stuff because, you know, how do you represent that in code? Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. So, okay, let's get back to the book. Yeah. Explain to me, what's, why do you think this book is so important right now in the time that we're in? So I think it's important. The best way to understand that is in context of the first two books. So the, in the dozen or so years since the first two books came out, lots of people have come up to me and said, I'm a cryptographer. I'm a security researcher. I'm a human rights lawyer and activist because I read Little Brother. That's what got me started about the both the peril and the power. Uh, that really came to a head for me when I was watching Citizen Four, the Poitras documentary that won the Academy Award about Snowden. And you see him leaving his hotel room in Hong Kong, and he's grabbing the things that he really needs to, to go underground with. And one of the things he grabs is his copy of Homeland. So that was, you mm -hmm. know, for me, like a really uh, exciting vindication, right? That the thing that I had done was not just 
making up a fairy tale to help you pass the long slog from the cradle to the grave that like I had informed the ethical dimension of the work of people who were projecting their will over billions of people potentially. And Attack mm -hmm. Surface is a book about a different group of technologists, or maybe maybe some of the same people, people who have rationalized themselves one step at a time into an untenable position where the thing that they got involved to do is the thing they do the opposite of. And, you know, 20,000 Googlers walked off the job last year. Um, you had senior AI people quitting Google over their unwillingness to build uh, drone support tools or Chinese surveillance tools. Uh, you had Tech Won't Build It and Tech Solidarity. You've had Amazon workers uh, in the tech side forming coalitions with Amazon workers in the warehouses. You've got this burgeoning sense among these workers that their allegiance is with users and with um, other workers and not with the forces of capital that employ them. And yet, here they are having looked themselves in the mirror every morning for years and years by telling themselves that what they were doing was justifiable. And I wanted to write a book about that crisis where you realize that it's not justifiable, but you don't know what to do about it. You don't know how to make amends. You don't know whether you should make amends. And you don't know what you should do next. And I wanted to write a book where people weather that because I think that's an actual thing that's happening in the world right now, that our, our tech ecosystem is being altered permanently by people who are having these awakenings. And, and you know, I wanted to speak to those people. I understand, I think, some of what that involves. I've made compromises on, in my life as of you. You know, it's funny because the first two books are YA novels. They're, they're novels for teens, and this is a novel for adults. And people at first were like, why? Does it have a lot of sex in it? Like, don't you know teenagers? They have way more sex than adults. There's no sex scene in this. All there is in this is like a moral reckoning, right? Thankfully, most <laughs> teens don't need to have moral reckonings. That's that's a strictly grown-up activity, you know? Yeah, there's way more existentialism and self-hatred in this Yeah, one. yeah. <laughs> well, but, and, you know, leavened with the same degree of like really rigorous tech uh stuff right where like where they're where they're dealing with uh baseband radio infections where they're dealing with um uh countermeasures to facial recognition using adversarial perturbations where they're using open source intelligence to figure out which algorithms uh surveillance contractor is using by looking at, you know, which universities they poached their researchers from and then reading the papers that they published before they went into industry to, to, to you know, find which adversarial perturbations they need to put on a pair of glasses so that they blow up the, the facial recognition system. You know, all of that stuff is, is very true to the way that the industry works, to the tradecraft and to the, the OPSEC that is currently in the world. And, you know, I was very... Uh, um, Delighted, one of the people who wrote the afterword to this book is Runa Sandvik, who's from the Tor Project, but was also the, the head of security for the newsroom at the New York Times for a long time. And to have her kind of validate that and say, yeah, this is recognizably the kinds of OPSEC battles that we get into uh, was really exciting and, and I hope gets to the intended audience of this, the technologists who, who really care both about how the, the stuff works and what it does in the world. But I also think you're right. I think you're hitting on something that there, this period of technologist, I think, I think they came from a place where it was at least at some point countercultural. It was, it was much more aggressive towards the system, the, the powers that be. And then they kind of got co-opted into the system because of the money that has been poured into, you know, all of these types of technologies and then now I think a lot of people, like you said, the 20,000 people that walk out at Google, 
think there's this period now where everyone's looking back and going, what, what are we doing with, with what the world is and where this is going? Because maybe now it's not worth that check. Well, maybe now we, we've got a problem. Totally. But I also think a lot of those people are like, oh, wait a second. I thought that my path would be get fall in love with technology, go to work for a big tech company for a while, then go do a startup, right? Then go do mm-hmm. something of my own, you know, make my own dent in the universe in that kind of jobsy end <laughs> way, right? And they show up and they're like, oh, no, the only startup that exists in this ecosystem is the Aquahire startup. That's where you quit mm-hmm. your job, you spend a year building a project on your own and not seeing your family, and then your employer hires you back under the pretense of buying your company, right? And mm-hmm. and it's the world's most inefficient headhunting slash bonus acquisition tool we can imagine. And, you know, it, it's produced a graveyard of what amount to like postdoc projects, by technologists that were nominally products, but were never actually intended to be products, merely to demonstrate that you could build a product so that your your future employer would hire you. And so they're starting to see that like, as nice as kombucha on tap and massages on Wednesdays are, <laughs> it's not what they signed up for, right? They wanted something, they wanted something bigger. And so, you know, to 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 be a cog in the dystopia machine is not a great future to look forward to, not least because, you know, if your employers are willing to visit dystopia upon the users of the technology, what will they do when they're freed from their need to coddle you? You know, and I, yeah, that's also sounds like a bad consolation prize to like a lifelong dream. Yeah. You know, I spoke at DEF CON a couple of years ago and I said to the audience, right, you security researchers with your, you know, half shaved heads and your facial piercings and your black t-shirts that say things that judges don't understand get to show up for work looking like that. And the people who clean the toilets have to show up in like humiliating taybards and hairnets. And it's not like your job is more important than theirs, right? Like you would be dead of, you know, listeria or <laughs> cholera if they weren't showing up to do their job. They're just easier <laughs> to replace than you, right? And the day that you are easier to replace, your boss will visit upon you the same indignities that they visit upon them. Because the reason that your boss is doing this is not because they like you, it's because they're afraid you'll quit. And when they don't have to be afraid you'll quit, then they're going to treat you like this too. You are on the shitty technology adoption curve too. <laughs> okay, well, that takes me you know, to a, a very important question that I think I, I wanted to ask you from the beginning. Do you think, this is something we've dealt with on, on this show, and I have my own opinions on it, but do you think technology can help us get out of this coronavirus pandemic? Yeah. I mean, yes, technology will help us get into the coronavirus pandemic in many ways. Uh, Like it's the organizing uh, infrastructure for allowing us to form political movements that demand better of our governments, right? (laughs) I I mean, even before the pandemic, uh, I was, uh, you know, I was firmly committed to all political change involving networks. You know, I, I grew up in Toronto, like wheat pasting posters to telephone poles, for, for political causes. And I'm here to tell you that anyone who says that we don't need networks to organize protest movements has never wheat pasted uh, a poster on a telephone pole. It is not an efficient mechanism of mobilizing people, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, we're going we're gonna to use it that way. We're going to use it to uh, evaluate uh, and uh, spread knowledge about and uh, improve the tools that we fight the pandemic with, whether that's vaccines or therapeutics or prophylaxis, right? Like it's, you know, the mm-hmm. at its worst technology is muddying the waters about things like masks and fomites and so on. But 
And and I am as frustrated as you are with that. So, so let me say that at first. But there is a but, and the but is: Do you think that all those people who are doing that research and coming to these consensuses could do it with fax machines and conference calls? Right, like the the fact that that they can download genomes, that they can download each other's data, that they can replicate each other's data, that they can subject it to um, uh, various interpretations by not just. Um, uh, talking about the best way to analyze it, but actually like sharing code written in R or written in Python and then evaluating each other's code for defects. All of that stuff is is how we are fighting this pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my, my colleague, um, Ada Palmer, who's a brilliant science fiction writer and also a tenured Renaissance history professor at the University of Chicago who teaches orthodox uh, heterodoxy during the black plague right like so you know homosexuality that's witchcraft. So, that's so interesting she's amazing right and she wrote a thing really early on about what herd immunity looked like during the pla- black plague not right? good it not was good. not easy <laughs> it was like herd, Im- herd immunity herd immunity in 1918 1919 that 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 pandemic was a nightmare yeah yeah boxes of people on the corners of streets yeah we don't want that so you know we're gonna get shut of that with technology and technology absolutely 100 percent has a role it also has a role in building things like systems by which people who are vulnerable can contact public health professionals and talk to them about um, uh, if the potential that they might be spreading an infection. So, you know, if you're an intravenous drug user in a place where drugs are illegal, technology will give you the cryptographic tools to have a zero-knowledge conversation, a private conversation with a healthcare official to say, I have been going out, I've been going to shooting galleries, I've been getting high because the uh, the alternative was getting dope sick, um, and I think I may have been exposed, and I need to know what to do so that people can have those conversations in ways that they feel confident about, because it's not like the behavior will end. All that will change is our visibility into it and our ability to recruit people to be allies in our public health uh, adventure here. And so, th- of course, technology has a role to play. I think you were asking about exposure notification, though. Well, no, I, well, I was going to get to that. Uh, so I think you're completely right. I liked that entire answer. Contact tracing, go. Yeah. Well, it's not contact tracing, right? Contact tracing is a shoe leather process that involves a lot of qualitative stuff that can't be incinerated without leaving behind a, a, an insufficient quantitative residue. All it is is it's, it's information about um, uh, whether a Bluetooth beacon saw another Bluetooth beacon uh, and there are lots of problems with that. Uh, it lacks a lot of context, right? It, it can't distinguish between uh, two Bluetooth beacons in close proximity at an eyeball-licking party and two Bluetooth beacons in close proximity at two adjacent cars in a traffic jam. Um, it, it uh, you know, signal attenuation is also missing a lot of, as, as a means of trying to fill in those blanks, is missing a lot of context that's important for making good inferences about the, the means in which two people were proximate to one another. So, you know, all of that stuff um, may work as an adjunct. I, I think that it's like um, there you could see as a common sense matter how people who are doing shoe leather, human to human, equitable contact tracing might benefit. Which, which, by the, which, by the way, the Chinese government has adopted on mass. <laughs> uh, the Chinese government does to, is a totalitarian state that would probably be the easiest... The easiest to adopt this contact tracing stuff didn't. They used people because you can't do it with a a stupid app. I think that's an excellent point. You know, like (laughs) if if the architects of the Xinjiang concentration camps 
can't figure out how to follow people around with a fine enough degree of fidelity and have to rely on persuasion rather than coercion, then what hope do we have? You exactly. Know? Like what, like what this, like America, give me a break. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's very true. And you know, the, the reality, like the lived experience of contact tracers in Iceland and in Norway uh, was that the um, the exposure notification was not very useful. In, in Norway, um, they found that it just didn't help them much, that the conversations shed more light and that the data sent them down too many, um, you know, rabbit holes because, you know, you've got, um, got a finite time budget in these people. And so, you know, if you're picking up a lot of spurious beacons, then what do you know? Like, what, where are you going to get mm-hmm. to? And then, you know, the the Norwegian experience was that there was so much concern about privacy that they didn't get enough uptake to, to make it valid. Now, all of that said, I do want to point listeners to something, which is that Bunny Huang, uh, who wrote the afterword to the first Little Brother book, who you may know as the guy who uh, broke the first Xbox and and uh, the guy who collaborated with Ed Snowden on the introspection engine, which is the thing that lets you know whether your phone's baseband radio has been poisoned, which is a technology that's in attack surface. Um, he has worked with the European Union to build open source hardware uh, exposure notification dongles for the government of Singapore that, as far as I know, they haven't adopted. But he, uh, he, he's got a bunch of really clever stuff in it, right? Like he, um, I think he's got a one kilowatt button cell in it. And he's like, well, one of the things that we know about this is that you can't put more energy into a thing this size using current material science. And we know how long, how far the radio antenna reaches with this much power, and we know how long it will run with this much power. And so it's a lot harder to hide hardware surprises to do supply chain poisoning when you've got this thing like a, when you've got a power cell mm. that's a known quantity, a commodity known quantity. Wow, uh, very clever. Super smart. And, you know, and it's all open source hardware and open source software. He's been on a kick for a long time to um, take the Chinese version of open source, which is this kind of don't ask, don't tell thing where when you buy a subcomponent, you just get some drivers and a like, you know, just don't tell us that you're using them and we won't, we won't ask you for a copyright license. And he's been like, reverse engineering that stuff and rewriting it as GPL'd. And so that we're hmm. going to have a fully GPL'd stack that goes from the lowest level components all the way up to the OS uh, as a way of of avoiding the trusting trust problem of having fully auditable hardware and fully auditable software with fully auditable firmware down to the very lowest levels, which, you know, is, is it's an important idea. He's He's got these uh, heirloom laptops that he periodically crowdfunds that are made of beautiful... Uh, tropical woods and stuff called the novena <laughs> laptops that have you know boards that are everything in them is is open and free and then like the actual like traces and stuff are beautiful like he's he's doing like art in the <laughs> in the in the etching you know like it's it's beautiful to look at they're they're uh um they're like they're almost victorian in that sense in in the sense of like you open it up and there's this just sort of pride you feel it's a bit like if you look at the arc of the um of the uh, machines that they used, uh, the Enigma machines, where the first ones that were developed for Swiss bankers before the war, you know, beautiful inlaid wood and, you know, tooled yeah. metal and stuff. And by the end, you know, they sent everyone who understands that stuff to the front to die. And the people who are building them, they, they look like they've been, you know, made out of like chewed up wasp nests, you know, it's just like mud Enigma machines, like whatever, just make it work. You know, we're Hitler's, Hitler's got the gun in his mouth. We need something, you know. Military ruggedness. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, Corey, thank you very much for coming on. Everyone should go out and get Attack Surface. Thank you. We got to have you on again to just talk about just a crystal ball stuff for us. Let's talk about monopolies next time and and influence. You know, I published a book yeah. with um, with One Zero with Medium in in August called How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism that kind of rebuts the idea that, you know, Google and Facebook built a, a mind control way to sell your uncle a, vis- a fidget spinner and instead Robert Mercer stole it and made him a racist. And and it <laughs> says that, you know, no, actually the way they dominate us is by having monopolies. And, you know, they're not like, I think tech likes the evil genius story because at least they're geniuses, you know, and, and that's a great, that's a great, that's a great point. I've, I yeah. haven't heard this argument and this is going to be the next thing you come on to talk about. I, anytime, man, I, I'd be happy to. Perfect. Thanks for, and you know what? We also pointed out that we're both Ontarians, two Canadians yeah. talking trash. We're like Love serial it. killers. We're everywhere and we look just like everybody else. Exactly. They can, I can't get, I, the people don't even, they don't even call me out anymore. No. no. I feel, I feel like I, I've, I've lost it. You got to get your oot on. I got to get my oot back. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> All right. Well, talk again soon. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.